This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is October 28, 2021. On today's program, it's hard to overstate the importance and global focus of the two-week-long UN Conference on Climate that kicks off just a few days after this episode goes live. Political leaders, industry leaders, and investors, they will all converge in person as well as virtually in Glasgow, Scotland. And while this conference, known as COP, happens every year, except last year, of course, all eyes will be watching this 26th meeting. It's the follow-up to the session in 2015 that gave us the Paris Agreement. It's a year where the effects of climate change have become all too real across the globe. And it's a year where the pandemic continues to show all of us that, like it or not, we're all in this together. In this first of our three episodes focused on COP26, we look ahead to what we might expect from the conference with particular emphasis on investors. For this, we had the privilege to speak with Gonzalo Munoz. He's the high-level climate champion for COP, mandated by the government of Chile. Since being appointed right before COP25, Gonzalo has brought his passion, his commitment, and his infectious optimism to the process. He's worked hand-in-hand with the likes of Nigel Topping and Mark Carney, and they've reached many milestones together, including the creation of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, better known as GFANS. I started our conversation, well, at the beginning. I wanted to get a sense of how one comes to be a high-level climate champion. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because I've been engaged in, uh, in, in let's say, environmental-related topics from the private sector for at least two decades. But COP25 in Madrid was my first COP ever. I have only attended one uh, COP in my life, and that was in Madrid, and I and I attended that one as as a high level champion. So when when my government and and President Piñera appointed me, there was a need of creating some sort of innovation, and and in order to do that, they brought this person that never attended a COP, uh, but has been working on environmental and some climate related topics for quite a long time. This topic and the process captures you. Like it's really hard to now. Uh, just go back to the old times, or, or, or even in my case, to to the winery, because it's it's really um, a topic that that takes you uh, totally. I know we're supposed to be talking about climate, but I believe he just said something about running a winery. We started that company 22 years ago, and uh, and it's been still running. It's called Viña Polcura. So we sell mostly Syrah in different countries of the world. And 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 I and, and I love to spend as much time as possible. But the one who runs it on a daily basis is is my friend Sven. When we meet uh, in person, or or we can prepare an, a new conversation when you have uh, a bottle and I have another one and we toast. I would love that. I would truly love that. Um, but getting back to COP. So COP26 was supposed to be last year, and it didn't happen because of the pandemic, of course. Do you find that a positive that we're actually still getting all these people together to talk? Or is it somewhat distressing that almost 30 years later, maybe we're not that far along? Well, um, that's, that's a 
complex question because it has many, many aspects on it. Like the first one is to be realistic on the level of challenges that we're facing. So every morning I, I wake up very realistic and I decide to operate as an optimist during the whole day because it's the only thing uh, I can do. Uh, and that's my best way to really add value with the time that that I have in in this such fragile life. The, the reality is that when you think about global problems, it needs to be solved at a global level. And in that sense, we've seen magic happens like the Paris Agreement. It's a beautiful piece of work that I have no doubt in 300 years uh, from now, people will go back and say that was really improbable and was amazing what we achieved in 2015. There has been uh, a lot of critical situations happening around the multilateralism, uh, but we're seeing also learnings from that and the importance of, uh, of, of having this capacity of coordinating action uh, at a global level, but also the importance of bringing uh, the, the so-called non-state actors, the, the um, subnational governments. So the, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations is now talking about the importance of moving towards the new multi-stakeholder inclusive multilateralism. In these almost three years that I've been in the role, I learned to value and understand the role of these conversations and how much they help us to build the right narrative, the right metrics, the, the process, the methodology the, that is needed to deal with one of the most challenging crises of human history. Even like the trajectory they have to follow will be probably the most epic challenge that we will ever face because it's not about few smart talented people whatever reaching the moon in this case will require all of us and the best part of it that we are finally closing the negotiation process and by glasgow i think that we will need to shift towards the implementation phase uh, which is uh, far more exciting and that needs by all means the engagement of all actors of society in a spirit of radical collaboration so we are exactly in that moment when we i think that we have to value the importance of having had those 27 versions where even the the voice of the small ones were properly considered and now that creating the conditions for moving to a body that will uh, be uh, and must be much more about implementing the agreement. And when he says all of us and all actors of society, he truly means all. Honestly, I'll never stop being surprised how powerful the voice of Kiribati of Martian Islands can be in a COP. And you can imagine that uh, Martian Islands that maybe have 80,000 inhabitants uh, in many aspects of the global economy might be perceived as irrelevant in this discussion is so important. It was difficult not to be swayed by Gonzalo's optimism. But to tell the full story, I did have to bring up the latest report by the IPCC, that's the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Secretary General of the UN called this August report a code red for humanity. Gonzalo's reaction? Honestly, um, the main takeaways of the report is this is nothing really, I mean, not relevantly new from what we received in October 2018. So so one of the important things is like this reached global media in a way that it happened, it didn't happen in the past. Probably it was quite related to the climate 
uh, anomalies that happened during those same, let's say, two weeks was was kind of a script of a, of a film. Like, like it, I, I tend to imagine that if there is some sort of collective intelligence in, in the world, that, uh, that being would have thought like, okay, these people are not understanding. What can I do? Okay, I'll send uh, a lot of uh, climate events happening in very weird places and with a very uh, strong uh, intensity. And at the same time, of course, I will send them this uh, scientific report. So put everything together to see whether they finally uh, understand that this is exactly one of the last alarms in terms of our capacity of reacting and, and and solving the crisis. But then I think that when it comes to the report itself, there are three key messages and findings that are absolutely clear and that we should be all taken into consideration. First, that this is crisis a human in, do, in, in those climate crisis, and that is absolutely indisputable. Second, that climate change is now affecting every region on our planet. It's not just about what happens in the, in the poles or, or in the small islands. And then, that some strong and rapid reductions in greenhouse gas emissions are needed uh, to curve global warming. And if we do so, we might uh, stop the crisis in a quite short period of time. If we want to keep uh, the option of the 1.5 degrees to stay alive, we need to do it now and, and understand that the, every single idea of, of not acting is much more expensive of any idea of acting and solving the crisis. And indeed, a lot of those things have certainly captured the attention, not only of governments and the general public, but businesses, as you said, as well as the investment industry, which maybe it's just from being on the inside here, but we as an industry definitely seem what I would actually call abnormally focused on the conference this year. I hadn't seen this even in 2015 with Paris. Well, I think I'm, I'm totally aligned with you, Adam, in terms of we are seeing this abnormal uh, focus from the finance sector, and that is exactly what needs to happen, not only for the sake of, of the finance sector, but for the importance that finance uh, represents for mitigating and also adapting to the climate crisis. I, I remember how proud we were in September 2019 by the uh, Se Secretary General's Climate Summit uh, when we launched the Climate Ambition Alliance, putting together the commitments of net zero by 2050 from states on one side, but also from non-state actors. We had at that time 90-something uh, businesses under the business ambition for 1.5 degrees and a bit more of 2. Point, I would say 2.4 trillion dollars committed under the net zero asset owners alliance and we were celebrating I mean that was a re really big achievement remember a little bit a little bit less than one year before in October 2018 we received the the, the 1.5 degree report from the IPCC but a series of factors have contributed for the awareness of the private sector about the real threat of the climate crisis. For sure, all global mobilizations by the youth are, are sending a clear si signal to business about what the future consumers and employees were thinking about their responsibility. Then, of course, everything related to the increase of climate impacts all over the world has also made the climate crisis a reality. They are all clear consequences of, of for businesses because it, it increases the level of risk of every type of uh, economic activity. Then 
we had the COVID crisis that also played a critical role for all of us to understand that we are much more vulnerable than what we ever thought and that every leader that didn't follow science behaved a lot worse than those that rapidly follow science in, in, in all the aspects that science was referring to. And finally, of course, businesses are also hearing what their governments say. And the fact that now uh, nine of the 10 major economies have set uh, their net zero target by mid-century uh, as, as the latest is sending a real clear signal uh, to all businesses. Uh, all of this combined, of course, with the reality that in many sectors, markets are already shifting towards a net zero economy. And, and we now can see how renewable energies are more competitive than coal in many countries, or transport is truly, truly moving towards electric mobility, shows that there are real business opportunities for those uh, who take the lead. You mentioned action needs to be the watchword at COP. So Let's operationalize that a little bit. What does the world need to achieve in Glasgow? We now need to finalize the, the Paris rule book. So in order to really move from a negotiation body to an implementation body, the first thing to that needs to happen is to close properly everything that is related to the negotiation. And therefore, uh, I, I, I understand that part of the success of COP will be related to finalizing the Paris rule book. Then... I think that Glasgow need to show we can still reach the 1.5 degree goal. Uh, seeing the, the summary of the NDC report shared by the UNFCCC last month, even if we still need some major announcements, it's clear we won't close the gap to reach 1.5 degree in Glasgow, but we need to show that we can still make it. And, and this is where the role of businesses, cities, regions, and investors is absolutely critical because at the end, what happens is that the NDC report is not necessarily showing the the change, the innovation, uh, the level of awareness, and even the exponential trajectories that, that that some even business models are 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 showing. You don't necessarily see at the NDC report the level of commitment that we have already uh, inside the the financial institutions that now have. 90 trillion dollars committed to this trajectory where is it in the ndc you probably don't see it there there's been massive progress in the last two years from all of these actors and and we're bringing many of them to glasgow to show national governments they have that they have the support and that we can accelerate this transition in the next years we of course also need to increase our work on adaptation. That's why we launched the Race to Resilience as a sibling campaign to, to uh, Race to Zero and Race to Resilience with the goal to protect 4 billion of the most vulnerable people uh, of the world by 2030. And in Glasgow, we will be able to show how more than 1,500 organizations are now committing uh, to deliver on this goal and to report in a regular basis on their progress. But Nothing of this is possible without finance. We now know uh, for a matter of trust in the process, of course, we must see in Glasgow that developed countries uh, are capable of delivering on the promise to raise at least the 100 billions in climate finance per year. So and we need to show how we're shifting from the billions to the trillions that today um, are invested in an intense carbon economy towards a resilient and net zero future. And and the, the movement we've seen this year in the finance sector uh, is being absolutely critical for this. This led very nicely to a topic raised by MSCI's CEO, Henry Fernandez, on our last episode. 
the fact that the power of capital and the important role of investors when it comes to battling climate change, that will all be front and center in Glasgow. We wondered how significant this was in terms of change of emphasis. Well, I think that the, the UK co-presidency has been really clear that, that non-state actor action, including finance, won't be a sideshow, but absolutely central to the agenda at Glasgow. Uh, of course, th there is a relevant discussion about carbon markets and the importance of integrating that an extra element to how we understand the, the, the economy and, the, and, and even the role of capital. But now the way this summit is organized uh, over the fortnight, there really places a focus beyond the negotiations, uh, a focus on the, on the real economy transformation that, that is therefore needed to keep the 1.5 alive and achieve net zero. So it will be two days of the political leadership, the political message, and then immediately going to finance. Because the central role of finance in the summit, uh, we understand, is a reflection on how this sector has moved to the center of the agenda on climate, which is a testament to Mark's leadership and, and the work of the private sector uh, finance hub, focusing uh, all minds around the risk-return reporting framework. Mark is Mark Carney the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Mark Gonzalo, along with Nigel Topping, himself a high-level champion for climate action, launched the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero this past spring. I wanted to get a better sense of GFANS, as well as the role it would play at COP26. Well, I, I think that it will be central because it's putting together all the efforts from the private sector when it comes to finance, uh, committing to concrete action uh, in the short and long run, building on what we started back in uh, 2019. So follow me with, uh, with your mind with this trajectory. It was $2.4 trillion in September 2019. Then in December 2020, we launched the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. And, and at that time, the, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance grew, I believe, from 2.4 2 trillion to some something re, uh, around the four or five trillion dollars in in assets under uh, under ownership. But then, when we launched the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, we thought it was going to give like well, put together like five trillion dollars. We get nine in the first day. So between the two of them, we had like about $13 trillion committed from asset managers and asset owners. We were partying. We couldn't believe the level of commitment that we had less than one year ago. Then Mark came and we said, okay, let's put together all of these. And, and with his brilliant leadership and commitment, he decided to, to uh, lead the, this big coalition of also other actors of the financial institutions. And we started working with uh, third initiative was the commercial banks. And in April this year, we launched the Net Zero Banking Alliance, and then we launched the Net Zero Insurance Alliance. And then, as you know, we launched the Net Zero Financial Service Providers just a few weeks ago. All of that together now represents more than $90 trillion. All of that together committed to this trajectory towards the net zero world by 2050 at the very latest. This is massive. It's massive in terms of the commitment. It's ma massive in terms of the money change from 
a place where it was creating uh, the problem to one where the commitment is to start solving the problem. Let me explain that with one very concrete example. Like in December last year, one pension fund from Canada decided to commit and join uh, the, the, the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance. They immediately sent this letter to all of their investees around the world, mostly in this case, uh, utilities, and many of them in the in the global south. So the CEOs of these companies called me and say, what is this about? I mean, we're receiving a letter from our main shareholder saying that we need to join Race to Zero and, and, and have in a very short period of time, it was like they, they were giving them like six months to uh, have a plan aligned with science to support the commitment from the pension fund. Uh, I had a call with all of them and then immediately they realized that it wasn't about their scope one and two only, it was also about their scopes three. So what it meant that is they had to start having a conversation with all of their value chain. So one commitment from a pension fund in Canada in December last year in less than six months started a conversation with utilities and from utilities with thousands of SMEs in the global south that are now joining the race to zero through the SME Climate Hub. Rachel Dratch, she's an alum of the American comedy sketch show Saturday Night Live. Well, she had a character in the early 2000s named Debbie Downer. The gag was that Debbie could turn any situation, no matter how happy or hopeful, into a downright depressing one. By this point in the conversation, I was really starting to see myself a little bit like Ms. Downer, as you'll hear in my follow-up to Gonzalez Canadian Pension Fund example. Despite some of these examples that you're talking about, these concrete actions, when you get especially politicians together, but even some CEOs in a large gathering like this, you you hear them say all the right things, right? But that doesn't necessarily translate into action. Given your background, given your involvement and your passion here, I'm curious what your reaction is to statements like that one. I mean, I think that it's it's right in terms of the risk. That it's always a risk with politicians as well as business and investors and leaders around the world. That this is why it is so important to understand that the only way to deal with the climate crisis is to engage all actors of society in a transparent, credible, accountable way. For the three campaigns, Race to Zero, Race to Resilience, and GFANS, uh, we operate by the logic of the three, the four Ps. They have to pledge, and that's one part of it, and they have to pledge through an initiative that has been validated by the expert peer review group. Then they have to plan, and they have to plan according to science. So it has to be validated by science-based targets. Then they have to proceed. They have to show not what they're going to do in 2049. They have to show very rapidly what they're doing today and what they will be doing mostly in this critical decade. And at the end, the fourth piece is they have to publish at least once per year. Uh, that is also a relevant element that uh, is related to what I mentioned before in terms of that we are moving towards what, what the Secretary General calls a new inclusive uh, multilateralism with a whole of society approach and where we all need to be accountable to our commitments and plans. It's also something relevant to take into consideration that uh, it's okay to have doubts. Every kind of question is healthy because it helps for us to strengthen the criteria and the methodology, but also it's quite normal that many people would not have still the capacity of seeing everything that is happening in different sectors of the economy. Uh, Nigel and I, with our team, 
we had the, the blessing of being uh, running this agenda. And, and honestly, it's absolutely uh, uh, over any type of, uh, of, of, of imaginary that we will have had in the past. I mean, it has overpassed every level of idea that we had when we, when we designed this agenda and when we designed these campaigns. Which brings us to my last question, which is actually looking forward another year to COP27. What to you seems realistic about where the world is by then? What are we What are we talking about next year? Well, um, well, COP twenty seven we all know it's going to be in Africa, so should definitely have a clear message on global solidarity and how the world is engaging with Africa to deal with all the the aspects of the climate crisis in a in such a diverse continent that is have is, is suffering uh, expressions of or many of the expressions of the climate crisis and then of course finance mobilization and resilience will be at the core of the African COP we have no doubt about it so we we're already preparing part of what we're doing for Glasgow to be really properly available for the next presidency to take to take into account and use those tools in order to uh, implement climate action in the African continent. Also, by the end of 2022, we should see a substantive progress, not only on commitments, but how this massive movement of the financial sector is having the cascading effect in key sectors of the economy, as I explained with the, with the Canadian pension fund. And we really expect that some of that will also be able to be reflected in the African economy. So my role as a high-level champion finish, uh, will finish at the end of Glasgow, so, so then it would come to another high-level champion from Africa to join with my my dear friend and, and brother Nigel Topping uh, to then have uh, al- the two of them have a long-term legacy uh, that will secure all the progress that we have made in the last three years in place uh, due to the extra year that we had together. So I, I do expect that Nigel working with, with the high-level, uh, the, the African high-level champion will also be securing all of this uh, concrete action to just in, only increase in time. So I do expect that at COP27, uh, we will be able to see how this massive movement of climate action will keep growing regardless from the leadership role that I had uh, and, and, and the privilege that, that, that I had to play during these three years. Uh, I do expect that this will continue growing and, uh, and, and then moving very properly into the phase of implementation. And it's, it's clear from just spending this this hour with you that clearly Chile was right to take a chance on what you referred to as 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 an outsider as their champion your 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 passion your commitment and your effectiveness uh is over these last 3 years it's been an incredibly eye-opening conversation for me and just I want to wish you the best of luck at COP26 and one last pitch if I can one day I would love to raise that glass with you and hopefully in celebration of even further accomplishments. Thanks so much, Adam. Look forward to that, hoping that we can start celebrating from next year on the 7.4 percentage of uh, reduction of emissions that we require year per year. So we may have the possibility of toasting every year if we reach the 7.5 percentage of reduction in emissions. Thanks so much for this conversation. It has been brilliant and look forward to a great moment in Glasgow. 
that's all for this week. Our thanks to Gonzalo and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, we're on the ground in Glasgow with reports on COP26 sessions, discussions, and maybe even some peeks behind the scenes with MSCI's head of ESG research, Linda Elling Lee. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.